7 is where we're going to be. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, we're going to be on page 894. If you get there, you're going to be right at the end of Mark chapter 7, which is where we're going to be closing this out today. And <clears throat> I want to glad that you're here. For, uh, I want to make a special mention of you. And, and, and if you stop by our Connect desk on the way out, we have a gift for you for coming. We know how hard it is to try uh, someplace new. And uh, feel free, please, to grab uh, some bulletins. Make sure you're signed up for flock note updates because there's a lot of events coming up that we want to make sure uh, that you're aware of. But there's one I want to I tell you about because it affects the entire church. I want you to save the date September 17th. Okay, that's a Sunday. Uh, we'll gather as normal. And then that evening, uh, we're putting on a church appreciation night. And we're going to bring in some bounce houses. We're going to feed you. We're going to have uh, kickball and volleyball and nine square. Every, everything we can get our hands on. It's just going to be entire, all three services invited, the entire church come out and fellowship together and let us as a staff just kind of appreciate you guys for an evening. So please, please uh, guard that night. We'd love to see you there and, and I hope that you can, you can be there. Um, but other than that, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch uh, out into this message this morning. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for the opportunity that we have to be here today. God, I'm grateful for each and every person that's in this room right now. Uh, Lord, we know that you have brought them here. Whether they even realize that or recognize that or not, you've brought them here by your sovereignty for your own distinct purposes and reasons. And we pray now, Lord, as, you, as we look into your word, that your voice would be the one that's heard loudest. God, that you would move as you see fit around this room, that you would speak, that you would convict, that you would encourage, you do whatever you want to do this morning, and that you get the glory from all of it. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So there's a lake uh, up in the state of Maine called Lake Flagstaff, and it was built in, in 1950 uh, when they uh, built a dam that was uh, designed to control flooding in the area and, and to monitor the flow of some hydroelectric plants they were putting in nearby. But this, this was a controversial decision, right? Because Lake Flagstaff gets its name from a town. Uh, the, the town of Flagstaff, Maine was established uh, in the late 1700s and it was flooded and destroyed completely to be uninhabitable ever again when this dam was built and the lake was created. And Halford Luckuck in his book, uh, Unfinished Business, writes about that time, that, that Flagstaff had been a, a well-off town, kind of an upper-class town with really nice homes and bigger buildings and it was surrounded by this beautiful scenery. It was in a valley and there was mountains around it. But when the decision was made for the good of the entire state to flood the town, they gave the townspeople like several months in advance, like a, more than a year in advance notice, right? They didn't just say, by the way, your town's going to be flooded tomorrow, you've got to get out, right? And what happened was predictable, but still quite stark, that when the town's fate was sealed, all improvements came to a screeching halt. And then eventually, all maintenance just stopped. Because why would you paint a house that's going to be flooded in nine months? And why would you repair a porch that's broken down that's going to be unusable in seven months? And then why would you even maintain a lawn that won't be there next year? And what happens is the date came closer and closer, week by week, Flagstaff as a town went from this picturesque, beautiful place to this ragged, broken down mess. And Luckett writes about this. He says, when there's no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. A lot of, of my uh, thoughts and mental energy and focus has been trying to get me back to the present recently. Because, and what I mean by that is this. I faced a lot of decisions about long-term stuff and future stuff and stuff out in front of me. And I've been trying to make sure that my mental energy and anguish over those things doesn't actually remove me from being present right where the Lord has me, right when he has me there. 
I read someone in a book say recently, I'm just trying to find the good in this day and give myself fully to it. And in all of this searching and pursuing and pondering and effort, one thing has become crystal clear, that to ever be fully present in this moment, there needs to be a faith in the future. There needs to be a confidence in what's to come if you're ever going to give yourself fully to this moment. And that is where we who are followers of Jesus Christ have been given a tremendous gift from God. Because he's given us a hope and a future and an eternity that is secure in his grace and that is tremendously freeing for us to be present right here, right now. When Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow, it's because he holds tomorrow. Right? But the only, the only, this hope is only effective if, number one, we actually have it, and number two, we consistently remind ourselves of it. If we're not followers of Christ, right, we haven't ever asked him to save us and forgive us, we don't have any hope in the future. And if we are, but then we let the problems of the present drown out and blind us from the hope that we have in the future, then it's rendered practically mute. Which is why this rhythm of what we're doing right now is so important. You made a great choice today to be here. When we gather as a church, when we praise, when we open the scriptures, when we're reminded of the truth of this hope that we have that is unconquerable. And today in Mark 7, we're going to see what seems to be an innocuous little story about Jesus healing yet another person, right? But a closer look is going to reveal to us what this story is really telling us, is that Jesus Christ is the single hope for the entire world. And someone about Brooke Hogan up, she's going to be reading for us Matthew 7, uh, verses 31 through 37. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Brooke. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears. Then, spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Thank you, Brooke. You guys have a seat. Please, as always, keep your Bibles open there. We're going to be breaking down uh, this story. And, and we're closing out uh, chapter 7 today, which means that we are almost halfway through the book of Mark. And that means one thing. It means I'm really worried that you're getting numb to these stories. Right? How many times already through seven chapters have we seen a sick person brought to Jesus, then Jesus heals them, and then everyone's amazed? Right? We've seen this movie. But... I want us to fight the reaction of like, oh, here's another healing, all right, right? Because every story is in the Bible for a reason. God included it for a reason. And Mark, as the author, he had a very specific reason for including this in his gospel as well. And Mark is writing, just, just a recap, he's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, right? His, his first target that he had in mind was, a Gentile, was Gentile readers, but not exclusively, and he knew that there were going to be Jewish people who'd read his gospel too. And you might not pick up on it, right? But there are multiple details here that, that Mark includes for all of his readers. And the first is this, that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited hope for the Jews. 
You might be like, how did you get that from this story? Well, I'll explain. Right, for hundreds of years, the Jewish people had put their hope in the coming of the Messiah, right? This, this one that was going to be sent from God to save and redeem his people. And I've mentioned to you before that over that long period of waiting, they had come to a, a pretty big misunderstanding of, of what the Messiah was to do. They, they began to put all their hopes in the Messiah creating an, an earthly kingdom, like establishing Israel as a dominant nation, not, not the spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to establish. But despite their misunderstanding, we can lay that to the side this morning, they still had tremendous hopes and anticipation that they would see the Messiah come in their lifetime. And so they studied with great fervor all the prophecies in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament about the Messiah with the hopes of this, that when he came, they would recognize him based on the works and signs he performed because they're like, this is exactly what we were told he would do. And so that background explains a lot about how a conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist occurred in Luke 7. It says, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one to, who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, quick, quick background to understand this, what's happening here. John the Baptist is in prison and he begins to start wondering, like, was I right when I told everyone Jesus was Messiah? So he sends a couple of his disciples to him to ask this question, are you the one who is to come? Basically, are you actually the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? And look how Jesus answers the question. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, did you notice how Jesus answered the question? I mean, think about the question again. John's question is really simple. Are you the Messiah? That seems like a yes or no question, doesn't it? But Jesus doesn't give a yes, no answer. He doesn't confirm it with his words. He then lets the messenger see. They watch as he heals the sick and casts out demons and gives sight to the blind. And then he looks at them and he quotes to them Isaiah 61 which is a prophecy about the Messiah doing those very things. His answer was basically this. I'm doing everything that it was prophesied the Messiah would do. It's a much more powerful way of answering that question than simply saying yes, isn't it? And we actually have one of those here in Mark 7, too. We get to study some language and grammar. Are you excited? All right, verse 32, okay? Verse 32, the CSB reads, they brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking. That phrase, difficulty speaking, there's a Greek word there that's very rare, and I'll tell you how rare it is. This is the only time it's used in the entire New Testament, in fact, if you go back and look at the Greek Septuagint, which is taking the Hebrew scriptures uh, in the Old Testament into Greek, it's only used one time in the entire Old Testament. So think about how many words you have in your Bible, and this word is only used two times in total. The other time here, besides here in Mark 7.32 is Isaiah 35.6. Guess what Isaiah 35.6 is about? It's prophesying about when God will come to redeem his people, when he will send the Messiah. Sound familiar? Here's what Isaiah 35 says. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And here's the word. And the mute tongue shout for joy. And so when Mark 7, 35 reads, immediately his ears are opened and he began to speak clearly. All students of messianic prophecies would know immediately what that meant. That Jesus Christ is the one that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 35. That Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he's the hope that God's people have been waiting on for generations. It's tied directly in that for a reason. 
Secondly, Jesus isn't just bringing hope for the Jews in this passage. In fact, you'd have to look deeply to find that. It's quite obvious the hope he's bringing to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were not privy to all these prophecies. They didn't study the Hebrew scriptures. They didn't know them, right? They'd long been treated as outcasts, second-class citizens by the sentence of Abraham. And so there was, they, they wouldn't have ever made this connection. But there was a tremendous flaw in the Jewish way of thinking about the Messiah, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't the flaw wasn't that it was going to be an earthly kingdom, right? That wasn't the flaw. This was their flaw, okay? The flaw in the Jewish thing of the Messiah was that they would be the only beneficiaries when he came. They believed that when the Messiah came, the people of Israel would, be, would benefit and nobody else would. But the reason this is so off kilter is because God had been telling them otherwise. Isaiah 49, another prophecy about the Messiah. God is speaking. In this prophecy, God is speaking to the Messiah. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, isn't that an incredible passage? That is God, through the prophet Isaiah, declaring to his son 700 years before he came that the restoration of Israel is just too little a job for you. I'm not going to send you for just that, right? Even to redeem those of Israel that I've kept for myself, that you're going to do that, but I've got much bigger plans for you. You will also be a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation will reach the very ends of the earth. And this is where we, all of us Gentiles in here this morning, we should be grateful and amazed and astounded by the grace of God. Every Jewish person in Jesus' day or those reading Mark after he wrote it, they would have no trouble believing that the Messiah would make the lame walk or the deaf hear or the mute speak. They would have absolutely no trouble believing that he would bring hope to the hopeless, assuming the hopeless were Israelites. What they could have never guessed and never imagined was Jesus. Who in John 4 stops, goes out of his way and stops in a Samaritan town and everyone there believe in him as the Messiah. Or here in Mark 7, takes a detour and stays in the Decapolis, this incredibly diverse region that contained Gentiles of wildly different backgrounds. They would have never, ever guessed that Jesus would have fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah to a Gentile man in a Gentile town. But this was God's plan, and this was God's heart all along, and it worked. Matthew records, uh, Matthew records Jesus stopping the capitalists in his own gospel in, in Matthew 15. And here's how he summarizes the end of it. He says, the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, and the lame walking and the blind seen. And what did the Gentiles do? They praised the God of Israel. They recognized that Jesus is a long way to hope of the Jews and he's their, their hope. And as it stands... Jesus is the hope for everybody today. And one story in Mark 7, and from it we can see a glimpse of everything that Jesus is. He's the long-awaited hope of the Jewish people, and he's the unanticipated but ever-needed hope of the Gentiles. He's torn down the dividing, dividing wall between us, according to Ephesians. There is no distinction anymore between the sins of Abraham and Gentiles, right? They're, all of us are sinners. Every single one of us are equal at the foot of the cross. All of us are in need of saving by Jesus, and he came for all who would believe in him. Which is why Galatians 3 says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Those distinctions are gone. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it's not just that as great as that is, right? That he is the hope for salvation for all of us. 
right? But don't, don't also miss what we see from Jesus here. He's also our hope because we look at his character here. Number one, he empathizes with us. I want you to read verse 34 again. There's a detail here I hope you didn't miss. It says, looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is be opened. Did you catch that detail of Jesus sighing deeply? Can anybody else feel that sigh when you read it? I mean, you've done that, right? You've, you've sighed deeply in life. See, one of the amazing things about Jesus is that when he took on our form, he became a savior who could actually relate with us. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus felt all the things that we feel. He felt the weariness. He felt the weakness. He felt the temptation, and yet he did not sin. Now, I don't know why here in Mark 7 he signed deeply. I have some guesses. It could, it could just be that he uh, felt a deep compassion for how long this man has suffered. It, it, it could be that he felt broken over what sin has done to his good creation and seeing the results of it so clearly in front of him. It could be that he felt the full burden of what this was going to cost him. There's a reason he tells them not to tell anybody about it because the hysteria surrounding these miracles would lead him one step closer to the cross in which he'd suffer immensely. A sigh that deep likely had multiple reasons. I can tell you, it wasn't a lack of a willingness by Jesus to heal this man. But we need to remember, it's good of us to remember that healing and saving others always cost Jesus something. Now, I don't, I don't know what has you sighing deeply lately. I don't know what it is that's, that's weighing you down, that feels heavy or burdensome or feels just like it's, it's ongoing with no end in sight. But you have a Savior who's been there, who knows that weight, who feels that burden, and he's right there with you now. And it's not just that he can empathize with you, right? He also meets us on a personal level. Yeah, the story starts with an entire crowd. And yes, there's this group of friends who bring this man to Jesus. But look what Jesus does with the guy. Verse 33. So he took him away from the crowd in private, and after putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. And so there's a couple of things. He gives this man his full attention. He takes him away from the crowd, and he's fully present with him. And have you noticed, right? We're halfway through the book of Mark. Have you noticed that in all of his miracles, Jesus almost never heals someone the same way twice? He never like says the same prayer or follows the same sort of like physical pattern. And let's be honest, this is probably the grossest way he ever did it. Maybe it's a germaphobe in me, but I'm not jamming my fingers in your ears and spitting and grabbing your tongue. Like that's just gross, right? But he never healed people using the same process. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, we try to copy it. Right? We, we would be tempted to think that the power was in the process and the method and not actually in Jesus. And so if he always healed people with the same prayer and same process, we already have swindlers on television acting like they're healing people. Like imagine how bad it would be if we could actually mimic what Jesus did. The power was from Jesus and Jesus alone. It wasn't from some magical combination of word or action that he unlocked this. I think that the second reason is that everybody that he healed was different. I mean, think about it. This, this man was deaf. And so Jesus couldn't have a conversation with him. He couldn't tell him what to do. 
And so he chose a way to interact with his other senses. And this is the amazing thing about Jesus. It's not just that he can empathize with what we're going through. It's that he's also intimately personal. It's why in John 15, the command he gives us is to remain and abide in me, like a vine is connected to a branch. It's why in, in, in Matthew 11, he, he says, take, take, your yoke, take your yoke and your burdens and give them to me. It's why in John 10, he says, my sheep, they, they know me and they hear my voice. That's a deeply intimate relationship. Because he's capable of meeting each of us right where we are. Speaking to us, leading us, guiding us, caring for us, shepherding us, and eventually transforming us into his image and likeness. A couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to interview four different missionary couples over a period of time. And I asked them all a variety of questions, but there was one question that I asked all of them because I was curious as to what answer I would get. The, sing- the single question that, that I asked all four couples was this. How did you know for certain that God was calling you to the mission field? Like, how did you know? And then at that point, it would be disobedience to not go. And you know what I heard? Four wildly different answers. Like, incredibly different. No pattern to it at all. But as I talked to them more and asked follow-up questions, a realization hit me. The way that God led each of them perfectly matched their personality and their background and their makeup and their worldview and more. God intimately led each of them to their will. He led them according to how he designed them and how he shaped them. And I was blown away. I'm, I'm amazed at the personal nature of our God, how he will lead each of us in the exact way that he's created us. Jesus Christ is our hope because he empathizes with us. He's our hope because he meets us on a personal level, and he's our hope because at the end of it, he does what we can't. Yeah, he empathized with the crowd. He got personal with his man, but in the end, he did what only he could do, which was healing this man. And the reason that means so much to us or should is because we face issues all the time that are just simply bigger than us. Problems, hurdles, situations, our own mortality, our own sin, they're just beyond us, right? They're beyond our power and capability to have an answer to. And, and too often we're tempted when we face those to be like, no, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to take the reins here. I'm going I'm to get this under control. I can be the solution. And it's foolhardy and only makes things worse. Jesus does what we can't do. He died for the sins of any who would believe in him. We can't do that. He defeated his own death and rose again. We can't do that. He offers eternal life to any who believe in him. We don't have that power. He will save any who come to him in faith. We can't save ourselves. And so what we have in Jesus is the perfect combination of someone who feels our pain and feels our weakness and can empathize with our groans and then meets us on a personal level and yet remains completely beyond us in his power and capability. Praise his name. And so what do we do with that Jesus? Right, well, here's, here's a few suggestions. Number one, and we talk about this a lot, put all of your trust in him. We'll start just with the salvation of your soul. First Peter 2 says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. I want you to understand what that passage is saying, that the greatest threat in all of our lives is our sin. 
We aren't perfect. Every single one of us is sinners. We have rebelled against God. And this is a huge deal. My sin is the reason I'm going to die one day. My sin is the reason that if it's not paid for, I will spend an eternity in hell. But just as this passage says, right, those who trust in Jesus, they will never be put to shame despite that fact, right? Because trusting in him is trusting in his death on the cross to pay your price and trusting in his resurrection to grant you eternal life in heaven. And that's the hope that we began by talking about today, right? That, that when my life is over, I need not fear death, right? That all my sins have been forgiven by the power of Jesus and I will simply pass from this life to an eternity that's much, much better, where there's no more pain and no more death and suffering or anguish or grief because Jesus has made everything new. But in that, we need to be clear where the Bible is clear, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. And that's what Peter was saying. Those who don't believe Jesus isn't the cornerstone, but instead their stumbling block, that they trip over him on their way to destruction because they've rejected their only hope for salvation. So if you've never believed in Jesus, make today the day of your salvation. Find the forgiveness and hope that's available only in him and turn from being your own answer. Turn from living as if you are the authority of your life and believe and trust fully in Jesus Christ and do it before it's too late. But our trust can't and shouldn't end there. I wonder... What is making you sigh deeply today? I wonder, I wonder what's keeping you up at night. I wonder what's dominating your thoughts in any quiet moment you have. I wonder what is the very scenario you're thinking about right now. And the question I have for you is, are you fully trusting him with that situation? Are you fully trusting him with that person? Are you fully trusting him with that illness? Are you fully trusting him with that scenario? Are you fully trusting him with your future? Or are you trying to manage it and you're trying to fix it and you're trying to be clever and you're trying to solve it by your own power or capabilities? Never forget that he can do what you can't. He can simply do what you can't do. And so listen to the ancient wisdom of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And just let go of the reins today. I'm calling you to repent of just trying to be in charge and surrender that situation and surrender your future and surrender your family and your life to the good and worthy control of Jesus Christ. Put all your trust in him. Secondly, we should be passionately bringing people to him. I don't want to lay a lot of guilt on this one. Because I think the example stands on its own. It's powerful enough. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on them. I don't know who they were. Mark doesn't tell us. It just says they, right? But I know two things about them. Number one, they saw their friend's need. And number two, they believed Jesus was the solution. And those two convictions led them to passionately bringing this man to Jesus and then pleading and begging with Jesus to heal him. And what I know to be certain is this, that every single day we are surrounded by and immersed in spiritual needs that are far graver than this man's physical deafness and physical muteness. And the question is, do you see them? Do you notice them? 
Do you feel a burden for them? Are you broken by them? Do you see the desperate need for the hope of Jesus in your family and in your friends and in your neighbors and in your coworkers and in your fellow students and teammates? And do you not only see the need, right, but do you actually believe that Jesus is capable of being their solution? Do you have a rhythm of pleading, begging passionately with the Lord for the lost in your life? And are you willing to be sent by him to be a mouthpiece for his hope and his healing and his gospel and his truth into their lives? And we need to have a consistent rhythm of just praying and asking God to give us both the awareness and conviction to be a beacon of light for his gospel, to passionately point people to the hope they have in Jesus. And then lastly, it's an interesting little detail in the story, but I think we can learn from it. I would just say this, Praise him despite your disobedience. There's, there's, a, there's a weird aspect of the story I haven't mentioned yet. Look at verse 36. Verse 36 says, he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. And so let's think about this for a second. Jesus Christ comes to their region, which no Jewish rabbi ever would. Right? And, he, and he stays there and he heals their friend. And then Matthew tells us he actually set up camp in the capitals for a few days and he healed many. He gave them literally everything they asked for. And both gospels record for us that they rightly praised him. Verse 37 here, it says, they said that he does everything well. In Matthew 15, right? It wrote, he wrote that they praised the God of Israel. There's just one problem, isn't there? He just keeps asking them, by the way, will you keep this quiet? And they disobey about as drastically as you could disobey. Mark says the more he requested it, that they be quiet, the more and more they told it. This is about as strong a disobedience as you can get. And the question that jumps off the page is this. Had he not earned their obedience? Had he not earned their loyalty? Did he not deserve that? What more could he have done for them to obey the one request he had? The problem with asking that question is if you're like me, you can't ask that question very long without it also coming back to you. Has he not earned my obedience? Does he not deserve my obedience? What more could Jesus have ever done for me that would earn my loyalty and obedience? And yet, how many times daily do I break his commands? How often do I live selfishly, have an attitude that's unbecoming or unglorious to him, or have thoughts that have not taken captive and made obedient to him? How often is my own life and heart and soul just stained by sin? And so what am I to do? Well, I actually think we get a pretty good answer here. This example isn't as bad as we think. I think we remain in the rhythms and the practices that God has given us by his grace. We seek time with him. We get to know him in his word. We, we gather with his church as you all do today. We, we abide. We praise. Right? We praise his goodness. We praise his power and his graciousness. We praise his sovereignty and his immense long-suffering patience with us. We praise him for who he is and what he's done. And over time, right, the hope and the promise of the scriptures is that in the abiding, in the remaining, in the praising, and in the adoring, that those things will increase more and more and more. And the sinful habits and tendencies and activities and actions will begin to decrease more and more as we're made into the likeness of Christ. And so the answer is this. Don't stop praising him. Don't stop pursuing him. Don't stop abiding him. Even in the face of your own disobedience, don't run away at that time. 
but return to the rhythms that he's given us. And so whether it's for salvation for the first time or whether it's for a situation that remains beyond us, or whether it's for a burden for the lost or an answer to our continued disobedience or an alleviation of whatever is causing me to sigh deeply today, or whether it's for a future that makes being present possible, our only hope and our only solution and our only answer and our only salvation, our only guiding light, our only rock and our only king is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so put all of your trust, and I mean all of it, in him today. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we are grateful. God, we're grateful to be here. We're grateful to have the opportunity to to simply praise you. We're grateful for the chance to, to gather as disobedient people. Father, I stand before this group this morning as a disobedient person to you. And I'm speaking to a room full of people who are disobedient to you. And Lord, I ask that, that in that, Lord, that none of us would, would puff our chests out this morning, that none of us would walk with a strut in the kingdom of God. None of us would think that you're getting a good deal in us. But instead, we would be blown away by the grace that you have shown us, that, that, that we're actually trophies of your mercy and not of our goodness. And Lord, would that lead us to want to praise you more? Would that lead us to want to abide in you more? Would that lead us to want to pursue you more? Would, would you, around this room now, would you give us a burden for the people in our lives who don't have that hope and don't have that future? God, who don't have the, uh, the eternal security that is found in the grace and cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who up to this point has been their own hope and their own solution, their own answer. They've never trusted in you for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. Would today be their day of salvation? Lord, around this room, I pray that as we close out this service with an opportunity to praise you, that that we would be laying down burdens. We'd be laying down people. We'd be laying down situations at at your feet and trusting you fully with them because you can do what we can't. We ask that you would find in this room, God, humble, submissive, obedient hearts to you in this moment. And we pray you get the glory from all of it. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, instead of maybe our traditional response time this morning, we're going to do what the people of the capitalists did. And in spite of our disobedience... In spite of anything we might have gotten wrong today or this week, we're going to give ourselves to the rhythm of just praising the Lord. And so we're going to close our service by together uh, just praising him because he does everything well. And so please stand with us. Let's go praise the name. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name. 